0: We're going to be in Matthew 27 this morning. For the past several weeks, we have been looking at how Jesus brings physical, spiritual, mental, emotional healing into the world. About how he healed people with different problems and opened a doorway for them to have better lives. Speaking of doors... Have you ever heard of the Monty Hall problem? It's kind of a math problem. I know I have a couple of math nerds in here. So Monty Hall, he was the host of a TV show, uh, a game show called Let's Make a Deal. Kind of the precursor to The Price is Right. Uh, people, would they would dress up crazy and they would hold all these crazy signs trying to get his attention. They, would, they were hoping to get chosen by him to be the contestants. And then they would guess the prices of certain items in order to win prizes. And sometimes the prizes were cash amounts ranging anywhere from $1,000 to $10,000. Uh, other times they were vacation packages or furniture or appliances or even new cars. But the basic premise of the show was risk. Would the contestant risk the thing they had already chosen or already won, in trade for something else, right? Often the something else would be behind a curtain or a door, and the contestant would have to decide between the two options. And it was, it was always a risk, because sometimes the prize was something worthless. Uh, I, I was watching a couple of episodes this week to sort of refresh my memory, and one time a lady traded several hundred dollars, I think she had seven, eight, hundred dollars, something like that, and she traded it for this box, and in the box as they lifted up was a giant box of rice roni <laughs> <laughs> On the show, they called that a zonk, right? Now, I like rice roni but I would much rather have the money, right? I think we all would. Uh, but that was how the show worked. You, over time... Uh, you know, they would build these things up, and, and, and then something curious sort of happened. Scientists and mathematicians got interested in the probabilities involved in the show. And believe it or not, there are people who study probability and statistics. And they study how probable something is to happen or not. Such as how likely a person is to get heads or tails when flipping a coin. Or the chance of getting a royal flush in poker. Things like that. They even have complicated equations to figure it all out. And I'm not going to go into any of those this morning. You can talk to Janet or Arlene if you'd <laughs> like to know some of those. Uh, but a professor of statistics at UC Berkeley named Dr. Steve Selvin was one of the people, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, one of the people who took these probabilities seriously, and then he wrote articles and papers about them. And he is the person who coined this the Monty Hall problem in an article that he wrote for an American stat- statistician. Sorry, that's a tough word for me. Uh, it's a scientific journal, basically, that he wrote this article for. Uh, so here, here's the deal, no pun intended. There are three doors, basically, and behind one is a new car, while the other two have something worth significantly less, like a box of rice oroni. Let's say Monty Hall gives you a choice and you pick door number one. He knows what is behind all the doors. And so he decides to show you one of the worthless prizes revealing door number three. And so they take door number three back and there it is, the big worthless box of rice and At this point, Monty Hall offers you the opportunity to switch your choice by asking if you want to keep door number one or switch to door number two. Here's the math part. We might think that we have started with a one-in-three chance, and now we have a one-in-two chance, like a 50-50 shot of this being the thing. But that's not correct. According to probability statistics, we have a one-in-three chance if we keep our original choice, but if we switch doors, we have a two-in-three chance. I have no idea how that math works, at all, none. But that's what the statistics prove. You have a better chance of winning if you switch doors. If you choose the the door that you would not have chosen to begin with. Now, I hope I haven't lost anyone. I know math is not everyone's strong suit. It certainly isn't mine. But the point is that the door we should choose is not the one we would think. And this connects us with what we will be looking at in our text this morning, because in terms of ultimate healing for our physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional well-being, the doorway of death is not the one that we would choose. Death wasn't the door that Jesus would have chosen either. We see that in his request to let the cup pass from him when he prayed in the garden the night he was arrested. The weird thing is that it is actually the door we have all chosen, which is why Jesus became one of us and went through it as well. So let's dig into this and see how something evil can lead to something good. Follow along with me as we read in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. May God bless the reading of his word. There is so much we could talk about in this passage. For our purpose this morning, we're going to try and focus on some of the specifics connected to who Jesus is and how he brought healing. And the Romans were brutal in their treatment of criminals and dissidents, and Jesus experienced one of the most torturous deaths ever devised by man. Contrary to some of the images we see, he didn't suffer suffer this excruciating death alone. As Pastor Brian Zahn wrote in our Lent devotional that we've been reading, Jesus doesn't die as a lone sufferer, but as Emmanuel among the sufferers, as God with us. That should tell us something. Something about how God chose to interact with us. And how that shows us part of who God is. Because if God is willing to enter our suffering, the suffering that we brought on ourselves in order to lead us out of our suffering and into healing, what kind of God does that? Is that a God who causes suffering? A God who inflicts suffering on those who rebel? A God who designed the world so that suffering would be the norm. If we look at Jesus' suffering alongside us as he hung on that tree next to other common criminals, doesn't that reveal that God is with us and not against us? We see just how common this all was by the details that Matthew included. They they offered Jesus bitter wine, no doubt as a, as a sort of last bit of insult to injury. They likely offered every criminal before crucifixion. And then they divided his clothes by gambling, casting lots. And considering how many people they crucified, this might have been fairly profitable the soldiers who did it. They took the clothes, they sold them, or whatever. It might have been some sort of trade for that thing. And finally, they... They all sat down to watch and wait, like an everyday thing, like this was just what happened, as though the Romans were just business as usual, another day, another execution. They also nailed the charge above Jesus, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And This is strange because just being a king didn't make someone a criminal in Rome's eyes. After all, they had installed King Herod and allowed him and his family to rule Judea for them. But Pilate wrote the inscription after talking with the Jewish leaders and then questioning Jesus, who gave him no real answer. And it's likely that Pilate meant it as a snub against the Jewish religious leaders who had stirred this whole thing up during Passover when they should have been helping keep the peace. But without knowing it, Pilate addressed Jesus correctly, something even the Jewish leaders refused to do. In fact, in John 19, the Jewish religious leaders argued with Pilate because they wanted the charge altered. But Pilate refused, telling them, what I have written, I have written. Another sign that their relationship was tenuous at best. But this relates a larger point about what was going on, about how power struggled against power, about how in the kingdom of God everything would be upended. See, Matthew was always doing this by showing how the wrong people got it right, while the right people got it wrong, even if they didn't fully understand, like Pilate who really just kind of wanted everyone to shut up and go about their business quietly, but accurately, if only accidentally, called Jesus the King of the Jews. The great irony here is that only the King of the Jews, God's chosen Messiah, could bring healing. Only he could set right what was wrong. Only he could rescue the people and heal and bring forgiveness. They were given so many opportunities to switch their choice. They should have taken the deal. But instead, they chose to stay with their original choice and kill the only one who could bring them life. And this is our first big question today. Are we... Doing the same thing. It's easy for us to look around and think we are all on the same page, that we all believe in Jesus as 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 our Savior and King. But do we? Do our hearts back that up? Do our words and actions back that up? We may not be mocking Jesus openly, like the religious leaders did but are we doing it by claiming to follow him and then living our own way? Are we accidentally getting it right while internally getting it wrong? But look at the things that they said. Beginning in verses 39-40, they reminded Jesus that he claimed he would rebuild the temple in three days, which he would. The temple of his body, which is what he was talking about, would be rebuilt in three days when he was resurrected on Sunday morning. Then the chief priest joined in in verses 41 through 43, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Jesus did save others, and was still saving others. Right at that very moment, he was saving us all. And it's not that he couldn't save himself. He just didn't, because he was in the process of saving everyone else. As we read in both Isaiah 53:5 and in 1 Peter 2:24, he was healing the rest of us by his wounds. Now they rounded it out by saying that he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if He desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And again, they nailed the truth. Jesus was the Son of God. He did trust in the Father, and the Father would deliver him by resurrecting him on Sunday morning, even if that's not the way they meant it. But by joining us in our suffering and experiencing death, the only begotten Son of God was bringing us the cure for our physical Spiritual, mental, and emotional needs by showing us the doorway to healing and walking through it. These religious people who claimed to believe in God were mocking the Messiah and King that had been promised to them by treating him as if he wasn't really the one because he didn't do things the way they thought they ought to be done. Even on the cross, When they said, he is the king of Israel, let him come down now and we will believe him. They wanted him to skip out on death. But would that have changed their minds? After all, they knew about his miracles. They knew he was healing people and casting out demons. We saw evidence that they said exactly that to him. Many of them saw it with their own eyes. They were there when he did these things. And yet, they rejected him because he didn't do it their way. He didn't come down and fall in line with their corruption. He didn't lead them to violently overthrow Rome. Instead, he went around healing the worthless people. The ones on the fringes, the poor, and the powerless. The ones who only gave a little bit, if anything, at the temple. The ones who didn't benefit the wealthy and powerful ruling class. So they rejected Jesus and his kingdom because it didn't look like the kingdom that they really wanted. The king had finally arrived to bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and usher in a time of peace, but they refused to switch doors. This is the same danger that we still face today. Christians who believe we need to take power by using the methods of worldly kingdoms, Christians who want to take back America for God by wielding power over various areas of our culture, such as education or media, entertainment, business, government, all of that. But that's what Rome was doing. It's what the Jewish religious leaders were doing. They wanted control. They had power. They wanted to dictate what people did and how they worshipped. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't try to see his power. He didn't try to force people to believe or to act in a certain way. But look at his life. And even more importantly, look at his death. We have to ask ourselves, if Jesus meant for us to employ the ways of the world in order to seize power and bring about his kingdom by forcing our way into a kingdom of the world. And why didn't he do that? Why didn't he go about things the same way the leaders of the world did? Why didn't he get himself elected to the Sanhedrin and bring about much-needed change from the inside? Why didn't he overthrow Caesar and issue an edict, freeing all people groups from the power of Rome? Why didn't he raise a sword? Why didn't he act like they wanted him to? Why did he come to the cross so willingly now, I've been told for years that, well, he had to save us by dying on the cross, but that now, things are different for us. But I don't buy it. I'm switching doors. We're called to follow Jesus, which means our lives should look like his. We say it all the time. His life looks like Sacrifice. Again, as Brian Zahn put it in our Lent devotional, the kingdom of God comes by co-suffering love expressed in forgiveness. In other words, Jesus suffered alongside us as one of us to show us that we are forgiven. As we have already seen in the stories of healing that we have looked at in this series, forgiveness and healing are inseparable. This is what we are called to do. Not to take over the different areas of our culture, but to bring the forgiveness and healing of Jesus with us into all our interactions with the world. To join with others in co-suffering love so that they might see Jesus in us and be drawn to his love and mercy and grace. That they might know that he became one of us in order to suffer alongside us and lead us out of the darkness of that suffering into the light of his healing love. And he did experience suffering. In fact, it was so painful and terrible that he called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's true that this is a pretty much word for word quote from Psalm 22. And that psalm is often seen as a, a parallel for what Jesus experienced here, such as in verse 16 of the psalm, where we read, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. So how does this factor into healing? <clears throat> In this moment, Jesus felt as though the Father had abandoned him. Like David, he felt lost and alone. David having written the song. He felt like everyone was after him. That everyone close to him had turned their backs on him. He felt all the things we feel when we go through difficult situations when the world seems to be against us. He suffered as we suffer. But he did it so that he might make us whole as he is whole. And when he cried out to the Father in that moment as he hung dying on a tree with all of this overwhelming him, he joined us. He walked through the darkest most horrible thing any of us might experience, the perception that we have been abandoned by the one who created us. A week ago, we looked at the story of the Canaanite woman who desperately kneeled at Jesus' feet and said, Lord, help me. And now we see Jesus having that sort of same desperate reaction, In his moment of need, as he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt that way? Ever felt like God left you? Like the Father turned his back on you and walked away? Like he deserted you? I certainly have. I've felt that way quite a few times. I've felt alone, felt abandoned, felt like I was on my own and had to face everything myself. I've gone out to some lonely stretch of road somewhere or hiked some isolated mountain trail and just let it all out. Crying out with a loud voice to the Lord God, where are you? Why is this happening? Why have you left me to face this on my own? It's too much for me, and I can't do it. Maybe you've prayed something somewhere. Jesus has. He knows what it's like. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's comforting. To know that there's really nothing I've ever experienced that Jesus hasn't experienced in some way. That he knows. And that because he's been through it, he knows the way out. But to follow him means choosing the door we would least like to choose. The door of death. To find healing, we have to switch our choice from living for ourselves and choose dying to ourselves. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, if anyone would come after me and follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's Paul in Romans 6-8. Now if we have been, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Which means that death is the doorway to healing and life, ultimately. And this isn't what we want. Not really. We want to live. And we want to be in control of how we That's the wrong door. It may be the one we think we want, but it isn't the right door. We need to switch. Switching doors means giving up our lives, just like Jesus. It means dying in order to live, which is a weird paradox. It doesn't seem to make sense, but that's how Jesus... Flips the tables on our expectations. We think it's one way and it's really the other. We think the answer is behind one door and it's really behind the other door. And while we all understand that Jesus cried out with a loud voice because of the pain that he was going through and the weight of it all, it's almost as if he also did it to get our attention to pull our interest away from the door of life that leads to death and over to the door of death that leads to life. With his final cry, Matthew wrote that Jesus yielded up his spirit. Look what happened when he did. Verses 51 through 54, everything about the old way began to unravel. First, and most importantly, I think the curtain of the temple was torn in half from top to bottom. We've talked about that before, about how this meant that because of Jesus, anyone and everyone now has access to the Father. And That's true. That's part of what forgiveness is all about. But we also recognize now that forgiveness is and healing are inseparably linked, which means the temple veil being torn was God's way of opening the door to healing. That animal sacrifices were not what he wanted, but our very lives. As we read in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The veil was torn and the way was opened for us to lay our hearts bare before the Lord. When we do, healing begins to arrive. And everyone has access to that. Everyone can approach Him. From the sick and the lame and the blind to the demon-possessed, even the bloody outcast, from the Jew to the Roman to the Canaanite, everyone. And they are all healed even gives life to the dead. Not just the young girl and Lazarus, but to each and every one of us. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 4-5, through the God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the healing. This is the doorway. Matthew also wrote that when all this happened, the earth shook. That makes sense because the creator of all things, the giver of life, had just died. The creation responded almost as if the rocks actually cried out. As the earth shook, the tombs of many who had died were opened. And then something crazier than everything else happened. Matthew wrote that many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And that after Jesus was raised on Sunday, they went into Jerusalem and a bunch of people saw them and interacted with them. The power of healing was so great that it couldn't be contained by the grave. It couldn't be restrained by death. It tore the temple veil and it shook the earth and it cracked open the tombs, bringing life to all that were inside. The one thing that had been the ultimate power of the kingdoms of this world, the one threat that, that they had against people they wanted to rule over. It was taken away from them. And this was just the first taste of what was to come. God finally tipped his hand, revealing the plan. The strangest strategy of giving in, of allowing the powers of the world to bring death so that he in turn might bring death life. The ultimate healing that we saw in Revelation 22 when we started this series. The end of sin and death. The kingdom of God with the river of life flowing from the center of it. The tree of life on either side with leaves that bring healing for all. The final unveiling of God's desire for all creation. And to round out this scene, Matthew included one final reversal, one last bit of unexpected table flipping. As the Roman centurion in charge of executing Jesus as a criminal recognized him as the Son of God. Now, where the chief priests and other religious leaders, they had led the charge of rejecting Jesus crying out for his crucifixion, this Roman centurion who had carried out that sentence saw Jesus for who he was. He was the least likely person to announce Jesus as king in that moment, and yet that's exactly what he did. For a Roman, to say someone was the son of God was to say they were the rightful ruler of everything. Son of God was a title that was generally only used for Caesar. So to say what this centurion said meant Jesus was king. In that moment, a pagan oppressor saw what the Jewish leader, leaders refused to see. Truly, this was the Son of God, the Son of righteousness that was about to rise healing in its wings. Is that who we see? Is that who we want? We have a choice to make. Some of us made this choice a long time ago. Some may be more recently. And some may still be making a decision. May still be wrestling with it. But all of us face this same choice. Which door are we going to take? The door of life right now that leads to eternal death? Or the door of death to ourselves right now that leads to eternal life? Will we follow the Jewish religious leaders in rejecting Jesus and the healing he brings? Or will we see Jesus for who he is and proclaim Him to be the Son of God and a rightful King who brings forgiveness and healing. That's the choice before us. Will you pray with me?